Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 134 of the Northern Miner podcast. I'm your host, John Cumming, the editor-in-chief of the Northern Miner. Now, this episode is all about the global iron ore markets, and uh, we have as our guest Matt Simpson. He's the co-founder and CEO of Black Iron, which is developing its Shymanivsky iron ore deposit in Ukraine. They're based here in Toronto. Black Iron is part of Stan Barty's Forbes Manhattan group of companies, and Matt is also CEO of Forbes Manhattan, the, uh, the merchant bank. Matt has a bit of an unusual background in that not only is he uh, the CEO of a junior mining company, but uh, he also has a previous life as a mining manager at Rio Tinto's Iron Ore Company of Canada, IOC, uh, the Iron Ore Mine in Labrador. That's North America's largest iron ore mine. So as an engineer, entrepreneur, financial person, he has uh, quite a, a full uh, spectrum of experiences with iron ore. This interview was recorded on February 28th. So we also talk about Black Iron's latest news. They have that project in the Ukraine, and they just signed an MOU with Glencore for a bit of a financing and offtake agreement. So we get news on that as well. And then uh, there's a bit of a lead up to national elections in Ukraine. So Matt comments on that too. This podcast is brought to you by the Yukon Mining Alliance. That's a group of 17 explorers, developers, and miners, all active in the Yukon Territory. You can visit their website at yukonminingalliance.ca for news on the different companies and profiles of all of them. They also have a very nice Twitter feed at at investyukon, all one word. But first, we'll take a little break, and then we will return with a promoted content segment. We call this our Mining Minute, so back in a sec. This is a sponsored content segment. We call this a Mining Minute. This Mining Minute is the third of four segments with Emmett Gupta. He's the chairman and CEO of Montreal-based gold explorer Yorbo Resources. Yorbo has gold properties in Quebec's Abitibi region, including a new joint venture with I Am Gold. So here we hear from Emmett. Because we're not miners. What we are is we're good at exploration. You know, we've got a fantastic exploration team headed up by Gerard Rubinet, who's, you know, is a very, very bright man. And, you know, we've got, you know, recently had Mac Watson appointed to an advisory board that will help us uh, in the exploration world. And we've got a couple of young geologists working with us that have been under Gerard's uh, tutelage for quite some time. So, you know, when it comes to doing especially DMS, I think our team is probably second to none in the world. And frankly, we're going to spend our energy on effective exploration and then take those results and go to people that can actually partner into, of course, feasibility and all those more expensive steps towards actually creating a mine that will be in production. Myself and my family, we have about 11% of the company. So, you know, we're quite passionate about making sure that Yorbo is a, a junior exploration company is successful, both for shareholders, ourselves, as well as our employees. Great. We'll take a little musical break and return with Matt Simpson, CEO of Black Iron, to talk about global iron ore markets. 
we're with uh, Matt Simpson. Matt, how are you doing? I'm doing well, John. I wanted to bring Matt on because he's a keen observer of the iron ore markets, quite a background in iron ore. He is the co-founder and CEO of Black Iron, which has a very high-grade deposit in Ukraine, has some news with Glencore we can get into later. But uh, he was also a mining manager at Rio Tinto's Iron Ore of Canada mine, the North America's largest iron ore mine, and has experience with Hatch as well in years past. You know, there's been a tremendous change in the iron ore markets with the Valet disaster in uh, late January. So there's so many things going on with the iron ore market. Matt, where do you want to start with this? I'm happy to talk about um, what um, happened in Brazil and, and how that impacts the general markets, if that uh, makes sense for you, John. So on uh, January 25th, there was a horrific tailing stamp failure at one of Valet's uh, iron ore operations in Brazil. And because of that failure, which is the second in about three years' time, the, the first being the Smarco um, tailing stamp failure, mm-hmm. the Brazilian government required Valet to shut down about uh, 11 of their operations, taking about 70 million tons of product out of about 1.6 billion globally off-stream. Maybe talk about just the permanency of that? Sure. So a lot of people were speculating that um, other companies such as BHP, uh, Rio Tinto, Fortescue, who are the other largest producers in the world, would simply ramp up production to offset the tonnage lost by uh, Valet. But quite interestingly, over the last two weeks, there's been um, several year-end reports by those companies in which every single one of those companies has stated that they're running at maximum capacity, including just this week Rio Tinto, and that they don't have the ability to easily ramp up and displace tons. Right. What that's done, John, is it's caused quite a bit of volatility in the iron ore price. When the uh, disaster uh, first occurred, prices jumped from around $74 a ton all the way up to uh, just shy of 90 Mm-hmm and since then have come off a bit, hitting down around $82. But uh, with Rio Tinto's announcement earlier this week, they actually uh, pushed up again to around 84 Right, wow. But I think the, uh, the key thing, John, that a-, a lot of people don't appreciate is that although some of these other miners can add tonnage to the market, really what they can add, though, is what I'll call average 62% material. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, the ore that's coming out of Australia is increasing quite a bit in two major contaminants being uh, phosphorus mm-hmm. and alumina. And the problem with those contaminants is it makes steel brittle. So if you're just making, say, rebar for construction, it, it doesn't matter if the steel's a bit brittle because it's all encased. But if you're making a um, skyscraper or, or if you're going to build a, a rim for a car, that steel needs to be flexible so that if the car hits a, a pothole, you don't want that rim to crack. Mm-hmm. Or in the case of a building, that the building needs to move a little bit with the wind and not have the steel crack. And the best way to reduce the phosphorus and the alumina levels is to blend with higher quality material like what we have here in Canada, yes. uh, what Valet uh, supplies, and what we're looking to supply with black iron. The other aspect I'd probably mention to, um, to your listeners, John, is that 10% of the world's pellet production is also now taken offline with these mines that are being shut down by Valley. Yes. And where it might be easy to increase, say, fines or, or lump from other sources around the world, to build a pellet plant takes quite a bit of planning, permitting, plus construction. So it's going to be at least a few years before the pellet feed and pellets um, are replaced from that tonnage that's been lost. I think of North Americans are kind of obsessed with gold. 
and maybe aren't familiar with pellet plants. So maybe you could just explain the value of a pellet plant and what it produces, how, how difficult it is to build a pellet plant, uh, and, and what is the current situation with the, the pellet plants in uh, Brazil a, a little bit more. I guess the analogy would be a refinery for base metals versus producing a concentrate. Would that be correct? Sure, yeah. I mean, there's three types of iron ore, generally speaking. The first is called fines. Mm -hmm. uh, the second is lump. And the third is pellets. And really in that order is the price that steel mills pay for them. Yes. And it's largely because with pellets, you have a much higher productivity of steel per size of furnace that you're using. Mm -hmm. So the way pellets are made is you typically take a iron ore fine mm -hmm. or a concentrate, which is like a sand, and you grind it even finer into a very, very fine, almost like talcum powder consistency. And then you roll it into balls about the size of a marble yes. with a binding agent. And then you, you cook them in a, a furnace in order to make them hard. And then when you charge um, a blast furnace with pellets, because the pellets are all perfectly uniform in size, being these, these marbles, you get very even airflow through that furnace, which allows the pellets to melt at a very even rate. And that's what gives you that higher productivity in the furnace. But I think even more importantly, given that the world is becoming more and more sensitive towards greenhouse gas emissions, it also means that you burn less coal per ton of steel made. Mm -hmm. So much more environmentally friendly as compared to lump or another product, which is called sinter. And sinter is basically, you, you take those fines and instead of making them into perfect sized balls, you basically just fuse them together into chunks and you feed those chunks into the furnace. Now, I guess broadly speaking, Brazil is known as very high quality iron, Australia low quality irons, and you have different benchmark prices so in terms of quality of overall global iron ore production, what, what does this valley disaster mean to uh, iron ore quality and the, the different premia with the different benchmarks, that kind of thing? Yeah, you're, you're spot on, John. Typically, um, material coming out of Australia ranges between about 58% from guys like Fortescue up to around 62 63% from the BHPs and the Rio Tintos, whereas Valley produces more of a 65 to a 66% iron. So much, much higher iron content, which again reduces the amount of coal required to make a ton of steel. So this high quality product uh, does sell for a premium. So when people talk about you know, iron ore prices today are selling for $84 a ton, what they're referring to is iron with a 62% iron content, mm -hmm. whereas the 65% material that uh, Valet makes is typically selling for a substantially higher amount closer to about $100 a ton. Mm -hmm. So you, you get about, today, around 5 4 to $5 per 1% iron, I above see. 62 mm -hmm. And just a Brazil-specific question here. They have the wet beneficiation in the south with slightly lower quality ore compared to the northern system and valley. And then, of course, the wet beneficiation creates far more water that you need to put behind a tailings dam. What is going on with the wet beneficiation? What does that mean to Valet with your mining background? So when you mine iron ore, you, you really have two types of ore. You have what's called direct ship ore, mm -hmm. which is typically 55% uh, all the way up to 65, sometimes as high as 70, but quite rare. So more in that 55 to, to 65 range, with the bulk of it being 58 to 62. And then you have ores like what we have here in Canada that need to be concentrated. 
And what that means is you take an ore that has a head grade somewhere in, say, the mid-20s to, to low-40s, and you grind it, and you either put it through um, spirals mm-hmm. or you put it over uh, large magnets to increase its iron content, typically to that 62 to 65%. So it does cost more money to make that product with a, a, a wet processing circuit, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. However, the benefits are that you have much greater control over your silica, your alumina, your phosphorus, your sulfur. So you can end up with a much, much cleaner product at the end of the day. And that product becomes very valuable because you typically do need to blend some of those direct ship ores, which may have one of those other elements like the phosphorus, the alumina, the silica, uh, too high to make a quality steel. I see. And uh, just tapping into your mining background a bit more here, what do you make of this issue with the upstream tailings dams in Brazil? They're obviously going to be phased out. How, how much of this is a Brazil problem, a valley problem, and how much of it is an industry problem, would you say? Um, it's definitely an industry-wide problem, John, and I think it very much varies by country as to whether upstream tailings dams were even allowed to be constructed. Mm-hmm. Um, there are several countries in the world where this practice is just not allowed because yes. it is much higher risk. Mm-hmm. So in Brazil, it's it's a major issue, and and that's why those 11 mines were shut down until new tailings dams are constructed in a much safer manner. And it really, really does, again, vary by country. But I think it's going to be very important for any mining operation, not just iron ore, that has an upstream tailings dam to take a very hard look at their design and make sure that it is safe and uh, and probably look at rectifying that situation and, and creating a safer design dam. Right. And could you just explain uh, to people who aren't familiar with tailings dams and what an upstream dam is compared to other ones, why it's cheaper to build, that kind of thing? Um, I don't have a huge depth of knowledge um, technically on these, John, but what I can tell you is with an upstream tailings dam, usually what happens is that you build a dam towards the front of where you're adding it towards, Mm -hmm. and you're typically using the tailings themselves in order to construct the dam as opposed to a downstream tailings dam in which you're advancing the dam away from your your actual tailings beachhead. So you're making a much more stable barrier, if -hmm. you will, to keep those tailings in in place. Would you broadly say they're not good for wet countries, as it were? Is it it okay to use upstream ones in Namibia or something like that? I don't know. I I couldn't comment on that, John. I just don't have enough depth there. Yeah, but... uh, yeah, I'm sure that's going to be a big issue going forward. Also, the I'm not sure if this affects the whole world, but the shipping costs have dropped dramatically because there won't be this iron ore coming out of Valle, Brazil, going to China. Do you know much about the shipping rates? Yes, you're right. I mean, what I've been reading is that um, ocean-going Cape size, which are the, the very large vessels, typically 180 to maybe 250,000 tons, mm-hmm. are actually at a, a low right now. And uh, those prices have come off quite a bit in the, in the last few months. Right. And uh, that does actually make it a lot more cost-effective for mines that are located further away from China to ship their product. Because with iron ore, another thing that's important for, um, for listeners to realize is that it's always priced delivered to China. It's called CFR China, regardless mm-hmm. of where the mine ultimately does ship its product to. Right. So I would guess broadly speaking, because of this Brazil high-quality material coming off that makes the very highest quality deposits like we have in Canada and you have in Ukraine, other places, extra valuable because you can hold them aside and blend with lower-grade Australian ores. Have I got that correct? 
you're spot on, John. It, you're you're absolutely correct. It's the quality of the ore and also the higher iron content that makes those um, mines so much more valuable now. So which countries, which spots in the world have this very highest? I know your ore is, say, the top 4% of the world. What exact spots have this really nice stuff? Some of the purest ores in the world um, do come out of Canada here. Mm-hmm. We tend to make um, iron with about a 65% content with a, a nice level of silica and, and pretty low in terms of the, the sulfur, the aluminum, and the phosphorus again. Chile also produces um, some very good ore. Right, right. And out of Europe, you have LKAB out of Sweden that mm-hmm. makes a, a very, very uh, premium product. And in Ukraine, a lot of the companies make a very high iron content, uh, but they don't grind the product fine enough to get the uh, the silica levels as low as what would be ideal. I see. Whereas with um, our case in black iron, we are planning on, on making more of a pellet feed mm-hmm. uh, product as opposed to something that would be more suitable to make uh, center. Because right. that's really where the, the world is shifting towards is, is more of this pellet lower emission type product. And therefore, it does allow us to um, to drop the uh, the silica quite a bit while still maintaining that, that very, very uh, high iron content. Right. Before we jump into the Ukrainian iron ore scene here, could you just give your idea what the iron ore market, the global iron ore market, is going to look like the next year or two with the Valley production? You know, some of it is just suspended. Some of it will come back. Some of it will never come back. And then you have the worsening quality in Australia. Can they return that around metallurgically somehow, or is that just a trend that will continue or say the next year or two in iron ore globally? I think we're going to see quite a bit of volatility on the 62% benchmark price. Mm-hmm. It'll probably range anywhere from the, the mid 70s all the way up to um, the high 80s. And that's really an area that none of the analysts, none of the reports that I'm reading have a, have a great handle on. I, I think that is a range that most people would agree with that I just stated. Mm-hmm. Where people do agree though, is that the pellet price and, and pellet feed price uh, will continue to remain elevated, again, because this isn't easy uh, capacity to displace. Yes. And when you start talking about things like alumina and silicon and phosphorus levels, what we're also seeing is that the premium slash penalties being charged on those different elements are actually increasing mm-hmm. with time. So what that really means is that um, the sale price for some of the ores in Australia which, to answer your question, they cannot easily change levels of phosphorus or alumina. In, mm-hmm. in order to do that, they would have to build a, a wet concentrator, mm-hmm. or they'd have to build some sort of process to extract those minerals out cost-effectively, which just doesn't exist today. So they're kind of stuck with those those high elements, which means they're going to receive lower realized prices for their product as compared to ores coming out of, say, Ukraine, Canada, um, Brazil, which will actually see a price increase because of their cleaner ore and higher iron content ore. You'll also see pellet prices and pellet feed prices remain quite elevated too, John, given that, uh, again, you have about 10% of the world's supply taken off with this uh, tragic valley disaster. Right. Normally, we would just be talking about Chinese demand. Where do you see Chinese iron ore demand, uh, say, in the next couple of years? A lot of what I'm reading right now is saying that Chinese demand is going to be fairly flat, Mm-hmm. over the next period of time. Yes. But you are seeing the Chinese government institute a lot of new environmental emissions mm-hmm. regulations, which are causing some of the steel mills to consolidate and shut down such that only the, the larger, more modern, efficient mills um, are remaining. 
And, and what that's doing is it's forcing a lot of the um, steel mills to be able to stay in business and not be constrained by the government to shift again to this higher iron content feedstock mm-hmm. because it does reduce the amount of coal they burn to make that ton of steel. So there's very much a, a shift in the market. Historically, we would have saw about 2 to $3 per 1% premium or penalty on the iron content relative to 62 Yes. As I mentioned today, we're seeing more like 4 to $5, and that did actually hit a high of um, almost $9 uh, within the past year. Mm-hmm. Now, I should say I visited your project in Ukraine uh, last spring. It was a fantastic trip, very fascinating. And that was one trip my family was more worried about me going to Ukraine than many other places I've been to, which seems like a joke now because it was such a wonderful country to visit. Can you just tell us what is going on politically with Ukraine, how that affects mining these days? Certainly, John. I mean, it was great having you on site so you could see firsthand what I'm going to explain to uh, to your listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, our project is located about 450 kilometers away from where some of the active fighting is occurring in just the eastern part of Ukraine. And that front line has not moved in almost five years since Russia initially invaded the eastern part of the country. And the main reasons why Russia invaded, and it's, it's becoming more clear with time, was twofold. One is that they wanted to take over the island of Crimea, where their naval base is located. And they're very transparent that it was Russian military that was coming in. They had a vote in the country to annex it and change it from Ukrainian to Russian citizenship. Mm -hmm. And that was done to protect their naval base, which is used to defend against NATO. In the eastern part of Ukraine, they're a lot more coy. They're saying it was this rebel infaction that came in when a lot of governments were showing satellite photos and very clearly demonstrating that, no, you know, this is actually Russia, and and that's why a lot of sanctions were put on the country. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting is that Russia came into the country and then just stopped, didn't really move forward at all on that front line. And the reason they did that is is twofold. Number one, under NATO rules, my understanding is that if you have an active conflict in your country, you can't join NATO. So by Russia just kind of sitting there, it prevents Ukraine from joining NATO and having a large part of Russia's border being a NATO country. The second thing is that Russia always wants to have a little bit of influence over their neighbors. And by also having that active war in the country, it allows them to have a little bit more influence over some of the decision making. Mm-hmm. Now, Ukraine does have presidential elections coming up at the end of March. So although it's been fairly quiet in the news, there was a little incident that occurred at the start of the year with some naval ships, uh, Ukrainian naval ships that were temporarily captured by Russia. Yes. Um, I expect that we might see a little bit more um, of this, this kind of flare-up in the mm-hmm. next uh, month until those elections are through. Right. But once Ukraine has a new president elected, I imagine things are going to return very much to how they have been for the past five years, which is effectively that we have a frozen conflict. Right. And you are now starting to see quite a bit more investment coming into Ukraine. In the iron ore sector, our, our next-door neighbor, literally one kilometer to the north, is ArcelorMittal, mm-hmm. who is a international company with iron ore mines and steel mills in several countries, including uh, here in Canada. But yet they decided last November to put $1.1 billion into Ukraine. And what that tells me, John, is if they're investing such a huge amount in Ukraine, they must be very comfortable politically that that front line is, is not going to move. And it's also because they're making a very good return on investment, in part because of how the Ukrainian currency has depreciated so much since the war initiated. It's, it's gone from 8 grivna to 1 U.S. dollar to now about 28 to 1. Right. You know, I've, I've been to the 
standard on the stood on the deposit uh, in Kriviri, and Kriviri is a established mining city. I would let's say analogous to a Sudbury, where they've been mining for decades and decades, and uh, there's decades and decades of mine life to come, and you have even richer deposits. And this uh, Chaminivsky, this black iron deposit, it kind of sits in the middle, and it, it's kind of its turn to be developed now, I would think. Was that a nice description of it? Yes. The whole reason why the, the seat of Crivari exists is for mining. So your, your analogy with Sudbury is, is a very good one. You've got um, a lot of very skilled electricians, mechanics, welders, mine operators that live in that city of about 700,000 people. You've got all your major infrastructure, including railways and power lines right there. So this very much is a mining camp. And much as you saw, it's very much life as usual. People are going to work, kids are going to school, people are going to restaurants. There's no concern in regards to safety in Ukraine as long as you stay away from the, the far east of the country. That The whole rest of the country is life as, as normal. Right. I wrote a full report on this. I'll link to it in our show notes. And we have an update on Black Iron just from last week. That'll be in our big PDAC issue. But I should say Black Iron was just on the verge of major financing, going to production just before the revolution happened, uh, whatever it was, five years ago, four or five years ago. And now you've got some big news, kind of went dormant for a while. You have a MOU with Glencore to um, finance. Maybe just tell our listeners what's gone on there. Yes, we had a huge development uh, with Black Iron announced about last week in that Glencore, which is one of the largest uh, trading houses in the world, has uh, committed to invest a material amount of the equity required to construct Black Iron's Shimonivsky project in return for obtaining offtake agreements, which means they're going to buy our iron ore product um, over the, the life of the mine for the first 4 million tons a year of production. Mm-hmm. In addition to making that, that material equity investment, Glencore is also working with us to introduce Black Iron to some of their investor and banking relationships to round out the equity and the debt that's going to be required to build our project. And what is the scale of the production and the financing needs, that kind of thing? So we're building our project in two phases. The first phase is 4 million tons a year, and mm-hmm. it's going to cost 436 million U.S. We will then fully self-fund an expansion to 8 million tons a year for an incremental cost of 316 million U.S. And the reason why we can phase the build of this project, and by the way, John, we could even start with a smaller project than 4 million tons a year and, and less than the 436 million, mm-hmm. is because pretty much unlike any other iron ore project out there in the world, we're not building railways, we're not building power lines, we don't need to build a port. And what we are building, we're using that city of 700,000 people only eight kilometers away to build it. Right. So it's more like a, a almost like a brownfield mine, as you got to see firsthand, mm-hmm. as opposed to you know this major infrastructure build. And yes. that's what really attracted Glencore. That coupled with our lowest cost in the world as certified by CRU, which is a big marketing company uh, that does analysis of iron ore and other commodity products, mm-hmm. simply because of the, the very high grade of our product, coupled with the, um, the low, highly skilled labor cost local. Do you think the Valet disaster uh, prompted Glencore to speed up its negotiations, or did, was that a factor at all? Uh, it did not speed up the negotiations with Glencore. We, we've been talking with Glencore for several years on this project. Um, mm-hmm. They were even showing very strong interest back in 2014 yes. when we had uh, MetInvest as our joint venture partner and had secured over $500 million from MetInvest, and we're on the brink of constructing it. Uh, so Glencore's known about us. They've, they've already done extensive diligence 
And uh, over the last eight months, they said, you know, now we think is the time to start putting substantial money back into Ukraine. We're very comfortable with the country, given that they already do quite a bit of business in there. And um, what happened with Valet, I think, just made it even that much more attractive because we will be being able to supply that that ultra-premium product. Now, Ukraine's in an odd spot. As everyone knows, it's not part of the European Union, but the European Union wants to help it out. Like, Where does it fit in with these international uh, lenders, especially the government-backed lenders? So Ukraine has a association agreement with the European Union, which effectively means that they want to move towards becoming a full member, mm-hmm. um, but haven't achieved that status yet. And what that means is that there's a lot of European financial institutions like the European Bank for Reconstruction Mm -hmm. and Development, the European Investment Bank. You also have a lot of export credit agencies from various countries in Europe that are willing to support Ukraine in its development and its move towards European integration. Uh, So for Black Iron, what that means is that it allows us to tap into some of those uh, funding sources to uh, construct our project. Right. Sort of last question here um, before we wrap up. What would be some milestones we should look for, say, the next six months in uh, Ukraine and with Black Iron in particular? So specifically with Black Iron, on the back of our very big announcement with Glencore, the next few announcements that um, investors are going to see is we are very close to securing all of the surface rights that are required for construction of the project. We're also now in discussion with different groups on construction of our project who would also put in a meaningful equity investment for being awarded that contract. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're starting discussions with streaming companies, which will reduce the amount of equity we need. And we've already also started discussions with um, banks and different credit agencies on debt financing. So all those things will get announced throughout this year as we bring the project towards construction again. Okay, good to hear. We'll be watching. It's always great uh, catching up with you, John. And uh, for anyone that wants to learn more about uh, Black Iron's project, I um, suggest they go to our website, which is blackiron.com, and can always feel free to reach out to me also. Great. Okay, thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. Thank you, John. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. That does it for this week's episode of the Northern Miner podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. You can help out the podcast, uh, reach more people by liking the podcast, sharing it, recommending it. All those things help the spread of the podcast. And one last thank you to our podcast sponsor, the Yukon Mining Alliance. Visit their website at yukonminingalliance.ca and their Twitter feed at at investyukon. And that's it for this week. Bye-bye.